This is episode 165 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake. This episode is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today, I've got for you another dystopian novel. Yay, dystopia! Uh, This one is called Oryx and Crake. It's by Canadian author Margaret Atwood and was published in 2003. And her dystopia is also caused by a virus. Yay, virus! You might know Margaret Atwood's name. She's the author of The Handmaid's Tale, which, of course, has become very, very famous over the past few years. Atwood is still living. She's 80 years young. And I won't talk very much about her life today. I have a lot of material as it is. And I expect that we'll return to her at some point. She is quite extraordinary. She's won the Booker Prize twice. Uh, She's one of only a very small handful of people. I think only four authors have had that honor. And she has a list of prizes as long as your arm. Uh, So she is very popular and very admired. Really quite an extraordinary combination. Oryx and Crake is the first book in a trilogy So I'm going to give you enough today, not to entirely spoil the book, which ends with a cliffhanger as it is, but so you can, uh, in particular, enjoy the next two books if you want to pursue the story. And I'm actually going to drop you into the middle of the story here, which I think is actually where some of the better writing is and actual movement of the plot. I was kind of thinking to myself last night when I was thinking about this book that essentially only two things happen in this book and they happen at the same time. So it's not, there's not a lot of movement and action in this book. There's a lot of buildup and background. So I'm going to drop you in the middle here uh, that will kind of show the mystery of the book. And if Margaret Atwood were a more pedestrian writer, I suspect this is where she would have begun the book. In the half-light, in the dank, snowman wanders from space to space. Here, for instance, is his office. His computer sits on the desk, turning a blank face to him like a discarded girlfriend encountered by chance at a party. Beside the computer are a few sheets of paper, which must have been the last he'd ever written. He picks them up with curiosity. What is it that the Jimmy he'd once been had seen fit to communicate or at least to record, to set down in black and white, with smudges, for the edification of a world that no longer existed. To whom it may concern, Jimmy had written in ballpoint rather than print out, 
His computer was fried by then, but he'd persevered laboriously by hand. He must have still had hope. He must still have believed that the situation could be turned around, that someone would show up here in the future, someone in authority, that his words would have a meaning then, a context. As Craig had once said, Jimmy was a romantic optimist. I don't have much time, Jimmy had written. Not a bad beginning, thinks Snowman. I don't have much time, but I will try to set down what I believe to be the explanation for the recent extraordinary events catastrophe. I have gone through the computer of the man known here as Crake. He left it turned on, deliberately, I believe, and I am able to report that the Juve virus was made here in the Paradise Dome by splicers hand-selected by Crake and subsequently eliminated, and was then insisted in the Bliss Plus product. There was a time-lapse factor built in to allow for wide distribution. The first batch of virus did not become active until all selected territories had been seeded, and the outbreak thus took the form of a series of rapidly overlapping waves. For the success of the plan, time was of the essence. Social disruption was maximized, and development of a vaccine effectively prevented. Although various staff members of the Bliss Plus project contributed to Juve on a piecework basis, it is my belief that none, with the exception of Crake, was cognizant of what that effect would be. As for Crake's motives, I can only speculate. So what is this catastrophe that Snowman is talking about? And here we have to go back a little bit earlier in the book, uh, but I think this uh, excerpt is also kind of interesting to compare with how things have developed for us with the pandemic. He'd waited for her at first with impatience, then with anxiety, then panic. It shouldn't take them that long to make a couple of pizzas. The first bulletin came in at 9.45. Because Crake was off-site and Jimmy was second-in-command, they sent a staff member from the video monitor room to get him. At first, Jimmy thought it was routine, another minor epidemic or splotch of bioterrorism, just another news item. The boys and girls with the hot biosuits and the flamethrowers and the isolation tents and the crates of bleach and the lime pits would take care of it as usual. Anyway, it was in Brazil, far enough away. But Craig's standing order was to report any outbreaks of anything, anywhere. So Jimmy went to look. Then the next one hit, and the next, the next, the next, rapid fire. Taiwan, Bangkok, Saudi Arabia, Pompeii, Paris, Berlin, the plebe lands west of Chicago. The maps on the monitor screens lit up, spackled with red as if someone had flicked a loaded paintbrush at them. This was more than a few isolated plague spots. This was major. Jimmy tried phoning Crake on his cell, but he got no reply. He told the monitor crew to go to the news channels. It was a rogue hemorrhagic, said the commentators. The symptoms were high fever, bleeding from the eyes and skin, convulsions, then breakdown of the inner organs followed by death. The time from visible onset to final moment was amazingly short. The bug appeared to be airborne, but there might be a water factor as well. 
Jimmy's cell phone rang. It was Oryx. Where are you? He shouted. Get back here. Have you seen? Oryx was crying. This was so unusual. Jimmy was rattled by it. Oh, Jimmy, she said. I'm so sorry. I did not know. It's all right, he said, trying to soothe her. Then, what do you mean? It was in the pills. It was in those pills I was giving away, the ones I was selling. It's all the same cities I went there. Those pills were supposed to help people. Craig said the connection was broken. He tried dial back, ring, 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 then a click, then nothing. What if the thing was already inside Rejuve? What if she'd been exposed? When she turned up at the door, he couldn't lock her out. He couldn't bear to do that, even if she was bleeding from every pore. By midnight, the hits were coming almost simultaneously, Dallas, Seattle, New New York. The thing didn't appear to be spreading from city to city. It was breaking out in a number of them simultaneously. Here's a break in the action. I'm going to move forward in the book. The rest of the time, he himself grazed, slept, sat for long hours doing nothing. For the first two weeks, he followed world events on the net or else on the television news, the riots in the cities as transportation broke down and supermarkets were raided, the explosions as electrical systems failed, the fires no one came to extinguish. Crowds packed the churches, mosques, synagogues, and temples to pray and repent, then poured out of them as worshipers woke up to their increased risk of exposure. There was an exodus to small towns and rural areas whose inhabitants fought off the refugees as long as they could with banned firearms or clubs and pitchforks. At first, the newscasters were thoroughly into it, filming the action from traffic helicopters, exclaiming as if at a football match, Did you see that? Unbelievable. Brad, nobody can quite believe it. What we've just seen is a crazed mob of God's gardeners liberating a Chicky Knob's production facility. Brad, this is hilarious. Those Chicky Knob things can't even walk. <laughs> Laughter. Now back to the studio. It must have been during the initial mayhem, thinks Snowman, that some genius let out the pigoons and wool vogs. Oh, thanks a bundle. Street preachers took to self-flagellation and ranting about the apocalypse, though they seemed disappointed. Where were the trumpets and angels? Why hadn't the moon turned to blood? Pundits in suits appeared on the screen, medical experts, graphs showing infection rates, maps tracing the extent of the epidemic. They used dark pink for that, as for the British Empire once. Jimmy would have preferred some other color. There was no disguising the fear of the commentators. Who's next, Brad? When are they going to have a vaccine? Well, Simon, they're working round the clock from what I hear, but nobody's claiming to have a handle on this thing yet. It's a biggie, Brad. Simon, you said a mouthful, but we've licked some biggies before. Encouraging grin. Thumbs-up sign, unfocused eyes, facial pallor. Documentaries were hastily thrown together with images of the virus. At least they'd isolated it. It looked like the usual melting gumdrop with spines and commentary on its methods. This appears to be a super virulent splice. 
Whether it's a species-jumping mutation or a deliberate fabrication is anybody's guess. Sage nods all around. They'd given the virus a name to make it seem more manageable. Its name was Juve, Jet Speed Ultravirus Extraordinary. Possibly they now knew something, such as what Craig had really been up to, hidden safely in the deepest core of the rejuvenescence compound. Sitting in judgment on the world, thought Jimmy. But why had that been his right? Conspiracy theories proliferated. It was a religious thing. It was God's gardeners. It was a plot to gain world control. Boil water and don't travel advisories were issued in the first week. Handshaking was discouraged. In the same week, there was a run on latex gloves and nose cone filters. About as effective, thought Jimmy, as oranges stuck with cloves during the Black Death. This just in, the juve killer virus has broken out in Fiji, spared until now. Corpse Corps chief declares new New York a disaster area. Major arteries sealed off. Brad, this thing is moving very fast. Simon, it's unbelievable. Change can be accommodated by any system, depending on its rate, Craig used to say. Touch your head to a wall, nothing happens. But if the same head hits the same wall at 90 miles an hour, it's red paint. We're in a speed tunnel, Jimmy. When the water's moving faster than the boat, you can't control a thing. I listened, thought Jimmy, but I didn't hear. In the second week, there was full mobilization. The hastily assembled epidemic managers called the shots. Field clinics, isolation tents, whole towns, then whole cities quarantined. But these efforts soon broke down as the doctors and nurses caught the thing themselves or panicked and fled. England closes ports and airports. All communication from India has ceased. Hospitals are off limits until further notice. If you feel ill, drink plenty of water and call the following hotline number. Do not, repeat, do not attempt to exit cities. It wasn't Brad talking anymore, or Simon. Brad and Simon were gone. It was other people, and then others. Jimmy called the hotline number and got a recording saying it was out of service. Then he called his father, a thing he hadn't done in years. That line was out of service, too. He searched his email. No recent messages. All he found was an old birthday card he'd failed to delete. Happy birthday, Jimmy. May all your dreams come true. Pigs with wings. One of the privately run websites showed a map with lit-up points on it for each place that was still communicating via satellite. Jimmy watched with fascination as the points of light blinked out. Margaret Atwood described the novel as speculative fiction rather than pure science fiction because she said it doesn't deal with things that we can't yet do or begin to do. That said, she's apparently not much of a fan of the science fiction genre and once referred to it as involving talking squids in space. And you can imagine that brought down a whole bunch of grief on her. Anyway, Oryx and Crake uh, focuses on this character, called Snowman, who finds himself in this bleak situation only with creatures called Crakers to keep him company. And the reader learns about his past, this boy named Jimmy, and of genetic experimentation and pharmaceutical engineering that occurred 
as you heard, under the guidance of Jimmy's peer, a boy, now a man, I named Glenn, who came to be known as Crake. And the name Glenn apparently was used in reference to Glenn Gould, the famous Bach pianist, who was also Canadian, and he was suspected of having Asperger's, uh, which might explain some of Craig's idiosyncrasies. He also might fit into the category of uh, mad scientist. There are some very interesting themes in this novel having to do with science versus humanities. And uh, Craig represents the uh, cold-hearted scientist, whereas uh, Jimmy represents the uh, humanities. He's also a bit of a dim character, uh, so I'm not quite sure what uh, Atwood thought she was contrasting there. If, uh, people who went to study humanities were ultimately su- survivors, even if they were a bit dim. She started writing the novel while she was still on the book tour for her previous novel, The Blind Assassin, which by some uh, turn of events I think I've actually read. Uh, we probably all discovered that there, we've read more Atwood than we thought. In March of 2001, she uh, found herself traveling in the northern region of Australia and doing some bird watching, and that's where she came across the red-necked crakes in their natural habitat, and she was struck with inspiration for the story. She said it was also because she had a lot of scientists in her family and spent a lot of time with scientists in her childhood. And she said, several of my close relatives are scientists, and the main topic at the annual family Christmas dinner is likely to be intestinal parasites or sex hormones in mice, or when that makes the non-scientist too queasy, the nature of the universe. She continued to write the novel during 2001. Uh, She also traveled up to the Arctic North, where she was witnessing the global uh, warming's effect on the region. And uh, there's obviously a lot of concern in the novel about what's happening to our planet. Uh, Sadly, 9-11 happened while she was working on the book, and she said later, it's deeply unsettling when you're writing about a fictional catastrophe and then a real one happens. And then she was able to finish the novel to release it in 2003. And she said some of the questions that she poses in the book are simply, what if we continue down the road we're already on? How slippery is the slope? What are our saving graces, and who's got the will to stop us? The book was, in general, well-received. Helen Brown for the Daily Telegraph wrote, The bioengineered apocalypse she imagined is impeccably researched and sickeningly possible, a direct consequence of short-term science outstripping long-term responsibility. And just like the post-nuclear totalitarian vision of The Handmaid's Tale, this story is set in a society readers will recognize as only a few steps ahead of our own. I will have to say, as a layman, I'm not so sure. The scientific requirements to pull off what is presented in this novel are uh, really pretty far off in the future, in my opinion, to make a new species or a bunch of new species with the kind of specificity that she is pretending they can dial in. But that, you know, that's speculative fiction. More power to her. Joyce Carol Oates noted that the novel is more ambitious and darkly prophetic than The Handmaid's Tale. 
She called it a work uh, ambitiously concerned and skillfully executed performance. And Oates is herself a master of extremely dark fiction, so uh, you know what you're getting yourself into. Joan Smith, writing for The Observer, criticized the novel's uneven construction and lack of emotional depth, and I do have to concur with that. She concluded, in the end, Oryx and Crake is a parable, an imaginative text for the anti-globalization movement that does not quite work as a novel. And I don't disagree, which is why I've distorted the presentation of the book for you. I think the structure that she's used doesn't quite work for traditional storytelling, in my opinion. But, of course, you know, there's more than one right way to tell the story, and she's not going for page-turner here. I just think she made it hard for the reader. That's my opinion. And Ursula Le Guin here might explain why in her a review, she defended the novel against criticisms of its characters uh, by suggesting that actually the novel is experimenting with components of morality plays. And I think this is right. I think these aren't supposed to be normal fictional characters, nor is this really a real story. It's agenda-driven, and so the work is more, works more as a parable. You know, I love to pick out really well-written reviews from people who aren't famous. And so here's one from Gregory Allen Wingo uh, in Amazon. He gave it five out of five, and he said, commodification is us. He says, Oryx and Crake is a magnificent work of literary science fiction and postmodernist criticism. Atwood creates a dystopia vision referencing Gore Vidal's Kalki and Chapek's R.U.R. combined with William Gibson's dark perspective of late capitalism run amok. It's also an homage to the beauty of vocabulary and its essentialness to human culture. And he's got an excerpt here from the book, which is quite notable. He compiled lists of old words, too, words of a precision and suggestiveness that no longer had a meaningful application in today's world. He memorized these hoary locutions, tossed them left-handed into conversations, wheelwright, lodestone, saturnine, adamant. He developed a strangely tender feeling towards such words, as if they were children abandoned in the woods, and it was his duty to rescue them. Gregory picks up again. This love of the lost and abandoned is, however, not limited to words, but also the dispossessed people inhabiting Atwood's world. It is most forcibly projected upon the character of Oryx, a woman so commoditized by the world that she doesn't know her nationality or mother tongue anymore. She has spent her life since childhood as a sex toy for Western consumption. Atwood creates her own version of Pasolini's Salo in Oryx's journey through life, one just as bitter and unavoidable as the Italian auteurs. Margaret brings viscerally to life the child bordellos of Thailand, the Italian countryside littered with Nigerian prostitutes, the smorgasbord of Dubai whorehouses, the pervasive presence of Eastern European mail-order brides in Western countries, the ubiquitous availability of pornography just a touch away on our computing devices, and the slave trade that drives all of this global commerce. And yet, this is also a story about a quest for love 
in a world reduced to filth and return on investment. Truly a novel of action, entertainment, and human pathos capable of joy and horror, ennui and redemption, and worthy of both sci-fi and literary acclaim. Have at it. Well done, Gregory. For The New Yorker, Lori Moore called the novel towering and intrepid, and she wrote, Tonally, Oryx and Crake is a roller coaster ride. The book proceeds from terrifying grimness through lonely mournfulness until midway, a morbid silliness begins sporadically to assert itself, like someone exhausted by bad news, hysterically succumbing to giggles at a funeral. That really struck me in this uh, period of time that we're going through. Right, so it's part of a trilogy. Year of the Flood was released in 2009, which was the second in the trilogy, and then the third book, Mad Adam, in 2013. Paramount Television and Anonymous Content announced that they had won a bidding war in January of 2018 to bring it to cable or video And Darren Aronofsky, uh, his company, announced that they were working on a television adaptation of the trilogy, perhaps with him as the director. And you may recall uh, Darren Aronofsky's name. He specializes in psychological horror and drama movies. So he was the director of Pi and Requiem for a Dream, which is a movie that still haunts me many, many years after seeing it. He also directed uh, Black Swan, which was nominated for five Academy Awards. So if he ends up directing this, you can imagine it will be pretty horrific. Uh, So if you just want to stick to the podcast, you'll be able to carry on a conversation about the trilogy uh, without having nightmares. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.